brought to you by Penguin. We see some amazing footage from around the world of wild boar walking through the middle of cities and deer sitting outside people's houses. You realize that nature is there, it's just waiting. It's waiting for its moment and given half a chance, it will come back. Hello, welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we chat to leading authors and artists about their sources of inspiration. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. And we're coming to you remotely, of course. This won't sound the same as being in the studio. You may hear a few glitches, someone banging on a door, or my kids being annoying upstairs. Today, I'm joined down the line by a celebrated author and activist. He writes environment columns for the Guardian newspaper and has best selling books and several TED Talks under his belt. And he co presented a short film, Nature Now, with Greta Thunberg, which has been watched over 50 million times. And his book, Feral, now available as an audio book, looks at the amazing transformation ecosystems can have if you reintroduce wild animals and remove boundaries. I'm delighted to be joined by my guest, George Monbiot. George, hi. Hi, Nahal. How are you doing? I'm, I'm good, Matt. I mean, these times of social isolation... Um, this is just life for a journalist and an mm. author, isn't it? Yeah, I've been um, socially isolating for about 57 years. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's to be said that by comparison to most people, I'm doing all right. What would you do to kind of decompress in between writing? Well, for me, it's all about immersing myself in nature, which is a bit difficult at the moment, um, especially sea kayaking. That, that's where I really leave it all behind. My um, place of refuge is, um, it's never quite the same place, but it's somewhere a long way from the coast. And um, I'm a very dangerous sea kayaker. Um, I sometimes try to get so far from the coast that I can't see it anymore. And when I've reached that point, then this extraordinary feeling of calm steals over me. And I tend to do it in Cardigan Bay in Wales, which has got the biggest population of bottlenose dolphins in Britain. Um, and I got to know them pretty well. I've, I learnt after a lot of trial and error how to find them and then just sit there among them. Once a dolphin leapt clean over my head, literally right over my head, it was a huge bull bottlenose dolphin, the same length as a kayak, about 13 feet long. And just before he landed in the water, he looked back for a split second and we made eye contact. And that moment, it's now 10 years ago, but it has lived in me ever since. I am there with you. (laughs) The description of that is extraordinary. How do you overcome your fear of the majesty and the power of the sea and its ability Mm. to be able to, because we're so kind of inconsequential when you're in the middle of the vastness of the ocean. Mm. Well, uh, overcoming rational fears has never been a problem for me because I have a sort of very powerful drive just to plunge in and think about the consequences later. So, so I am constantly getting into trouble. I worked at the BBC for a couple of years as an investigative journalist until Mrs Thatcher launched her coup in 1987 and pretty well killed investigative journalism. But I was on to a very big story at the time, which um, 
was this horrendous project in Indonesia to move hundreds of thousands of people from Java and Bali into the outer islands, basically to carry out ethnic cleansing. So I went to Penguin and said, look, I've got this crazy idea for a book. I want to go out to West Papua, this occupied territory, and um, I'm mad enough to do it. And I'm going to write a very powerful account of what's going on. And um, they said, well, okay, if you're mad enough to do it, we're mad enough to give you an advance for it. And so then I phoned up my best friend, Adrian Arbib, and I said, um, I'm going to go um, to West Papua. You won't, you won't have heard of it. And it's extremely dangerous. The last two journalists who tried to cover it both got killed. And he said, yes. I said, I haven't asked you a question yet. He said, yeah, but the answer is yes. And so, you know, the two of us, we were both 24 at the time. And spent several weeks in Jakarta trying to get permission to travel to West Papua. This was under the Suharto dictatorship. You just couldn't go there and we couldn't get permission. And one day I was in the central police office, having been queuing for ages, trying to talk to various officials. And I went down a corridor to get a drink of water. And there was a door ajar, and it said head of immigration police on the door. So I thought, I'm going to go in there and reason with the chap. And I knocked on the door and there was no answer. And I pushed the door ajar. And there was no one in there. But on the desk was this pad of headed notepaper and a stamp. Who needs to get official permission? So, we, so I took them and we wrote ourselves this um, letter granting ourselves permission to, to travel through West Papua. And that's how we got there. And it got us into and out of a phenomenal amount of trouble. At one stage, we were caught by military police and um, held for three days while they tried to check the letter out and they could not make contact. Had they done so, they would have shot us. Can you trace that back, the recklessness, as you call it, to your childhood? Were you someone that would just go off and disappear time in nature? Were you someone that has been mm. risk-averse since you can remember? Nature was my refuge as a kid. I had quite a troubled upbringing and a lot of very difficult times. And I, I would escape into the woods. I was very lucky that we lived on the edge of a common, which was um, a, a rewilded place, actually. And it was only after writing Feral that um, I suddenly thought, wait a minute, this is where my enthusiasm for rewilding came from, because this common, which was about 100, 150 acres, had previously been a golf course. And then about 20 years before I, I was born, the golfing had stopped and it had just been left to revert to nature. And that was where I hid. I mean, I hid from, you know, some some, some quite bad stuff. And, and I felt totally comfortable in nature and less comfortable at home and less comfortable at school. I, I guess it was that, that comfort still draws me into wild or wildish places where... I, I don't feel the sense of danger that other people feel because that feels like home. Mm. But the word rewilding didn't come into your vocabulary till much later. You didn't... No. Ha there was no word for what you were witnessing around you as a child. Mm. That's right. Um, the word was coined in the early 90s um, by um, Michel Soule. It didn't really come into my mind 
until I was already writing Feral. A few years before, I'd moved to Mid Wales, and I'd moved partly because of wanting to be in a wilder place. And everything you read about that area, the town I moved to, Machantleth, had Snowdonia on one side and the Cambrian Mountains on the other. There was this tremendous sense of excitement I felt when I arrived because I could just set off and walk in any direction, not even seeing a single human being. But gradually that excitement gave way to despair because I found that wherever I walked, it wasn't just human beings who were missing. It was wildlife as well. There were just no trees, almost anywhere above 200 metres. There's nowhere in Wales which would be naturally treeless as a result of altitude. There were hardly any birds. You could literally walk all day and see two crows, perhaps some invasive Canada geese on a lake, and that was it. It was uncanny. It was like the aftermath of a nuclear winter. Obviously, I started looking for an explanation and I saw it pretty quickly because everywhere I went, there were sheep. And the sheep, which is an animal which came from Mesopotamia, um, is um, uh, a very effective browser and grazer which will browse out selectively everything except a few very coarse species of grass and moss and one or two flowering plants that it doesn't like. And the first thing that sheep go for is tree seedlings because they're highly nutritious. I mean, it sounds extraordinary that sheep destroy forests, but they do so um, highly effectively. They're a fully automated system for maximum ecological destruction, and the sheep have wiped everything out. How do we get, George, human beings to change their psychology to resist the urge to want to dominate the environment Mm. around them? Well, this urge to dominate, the idea of conquering nature, is, is a deep metaphor, a deep frame which shapes the way that we think. And it goes back a long way. I mean, people see it as biblical, and it is biblical, but it predates the Bible. The idea of taming the rivers and the land was very dominant in Mesopotamian culture. You can see it in the Epic of Gilgamesh, where um, Gilgamesh and his companion um, go to the great cedar forests and kill um, Humbabi, the um, the spirit demon who who looks after the forests, and then start cutting them down, cutting down the very biggest tree first. And this process really was going on. You know, the cedars of Lebanon were being cleared by the Mesopotamians. And there was very much this idea that we have to conquer and cast down and dominate nature. And on that idea, what we call our civilization was founded. But we don't have to carry on living like that. We can found a very different civilization, one based on integration and connection with nature, one in which we no longer extract from and objectify nature, but see ourselves as deeply embedded within it. And it's for that reason that, and I'm sorry to mess up your format, I, I flatly refused to bring along <laughs> four objects to talk about. Yes, you did. <laughs> because... <laughs> What feral is, is, is all about is, is about the system. It's about the complex system of nature and the way in which 
you can't separate the elements out without trashing the system. And if you try to extract something, literally or metaphorically, you cease to see the system to which it belongs. And and to take an object and to say, this is precious to me, is, is literally to objectify nature, which means to downgrade it from something complex to, to something simple. It's that objectification which, in my view, is, is closely meshed with the dominance um, idea that you that, that you brought up. So looking at things that you object to rather than objects you want to talk about, hmm. let's start with fences. Hmm. And I can completely understand why, as I look at my garden fence and think how much more interesting it would be if it was a hedgerow. Hmm. But tell us why you despise fences so. I guess that in certain situations, fences have a role. But in a lot of places, you have to look at what they're fencing in and what they're fencing out. And in places like Mid Wales, where I began thinking in this way, it became clear to me that nature as a whole was being fenced out. I mean, all all agriculture is a radical simplification of a highly complex natural system. And yeah, we have to put up with that because we have to eat. But what was really crazy in Wales was that this place which could have been a great refuge for nature, which we expect to be a great refuge for nature, was being fenced in, nature being fenced out, turned into a monoculture of coarse grass, while producing almost no food at all. It's happening entirely because of public money, because of the subsidies which you and I are paying through our taxes to keep farming that land. In fact, under the current system, a farmer can't get subsidies unless the land is in so-called agricultural condition. They don't actually have to produce anything to qualify. They just have to show that the land looks as if it is set up to produce things. And what that means is bare. If you have what the rules call in their wonderful bureaucratic jargon permanent ineligible features on your land, you can't claim subsidies for that land. What are permanent ineligible features? Wildlife habitats. They're they're regenerating woodland, they're ponds, they're wide hedgerows, they're, they're wetlands, they're all the things that an ecologist would want to see. You have a financial incentive to get rid of them. And across Europe, hundreds of thousands of hectares of amazing wildlife land have been destroyed just to claim those subsidies. It's an incredibly profligate, a crazily wasteful use of land. And that land, I strongly feel, should be rewilded. We should be saying, let's pay the farmers to do something completely different, to take down the fences, to sell off the sheep, and to start putting back the wonders of nature and allowing natural systems to regenerate themselves, to self-organise in the way they do, to discover their own complexity and their own dynamism. And for that to happen, you bring in the keystone species, species which have a far greater impact on the ecosystem than their numbers and their weight would suggest. In other words, ecological engineers, species such as beavers, wolves, lynx, all of which transform their environments and allow 
other animals and plants to prosper. Are you in any way encouraged by what we have seen happen in a very short space of time because we are no longer travelling as much as we are, Mm. seeing fish in Venice, 50% Mm. reduction in air pollution in cities like New York. Are you Mm. encouraged that this shows that the problems that we are presented with, some of them, can actually be overcome in a relatively short space of time? Could it be that one thing we get out of this catastrophe is start thinking hard about a completely different way of of living. And that would be wonderful if we did. We we shouldn't exaggerate the change that's happened so far. Some of the stories about Venice don't really check out. In fact, Venice canals had already been quite substantially rewilded. Um, I was there 10 years ago, and, um, and the change from when I'd been there 10 years before that was astonishing that they were basically open sewers. But by 10 years ago, they were lined, the canals were lined with oysters full of mullet and scorpion fish. It was was really amazing ecological restoration. So that had kind of already happened. But the reduction in air pollution, the reduction in noise, the reduction in, in greenhouse gases, all those are things which it would be really fantastic to sustain. And then we see some amazing footage from around the world of wild boar walking through the middle of cities and deer sitting outside people's houses because they're not being disturbed. And you realise that nature is there. It's just waiting. It's waiting for its moment. And given half a chance, it will come back. So what we need to do is to find ways of living which suit us, which are good for human well-being, whereas at the same time, making room for nature. Flamethrowers. Now, I think it's fairly logical to have an issue with flamethrowers. They serve no real great purpose that I can think of. Why um, have you taken particular issue with flamethrowers as an object that you object to? (laughs) A sort of flamethrower type thing is used on grouse moors to set light to them. So every year, the owners of grouse moors commission their servants to go out and and burn strips of heather in order to stimulate a new growth, young shoots coming through, which the grouse like to eat. And so that builds up greater numbers of grouse. And in doing so, yes, you release huge amounts of carbon into the air. You might make the uh, towns and villages downstream more prone to flooding and you destroy huge amounts of wildlife. And you go to a place like the North York Moors National Park, and you know, it's just staggering that this is happening inside national parks. In fact, when the International Union for the Conservation of Nature tried to integrate British national parks into its classification system, it had to invent a whole new category called Category 5, which is slightly more ecologically diverse than a multi-storey car park, but not a lot, because they just didn't fit with anything and elsewhere in the world that we call national parks. Before this horrible 12th thing where they all start shooting the grouse, you walk up into the hills and there are grouse everywhere. It's like a gigantic chicken run. They're wild animals, but the whole land has been manipulated to maximise their numbers, which means minimising the numbers of everything else. And as someone 
who really cut my teeth in the tropics, working first in West, West Papua, then in Brazil, then in East Africa, and, and seeing what thriving natural ecosystems look like, what they're supposed to look like, what incredible food webs they have, what amazing dynamism they have, amazing structure they have. And coming back to Britain and walking in places that we call national parks and call nature reserves and seeing them so miserable, so depleted, looking so much like the the cleared lands in the Amazon, in West Papua, in East Africa, which we all object to when we see them. So look at all this terrible environmental destruction going on in those other countries. And then we walk in our supposed conservation land here in this country, and it's even worse than the places in which that terrible environmental destruction has happened, and we call it the protection of nature. We can't tell the difference between destruction and protection. One thing I thought was fascinating was that what happened when they were digging up the area which is now known as Trafalgar Square, George, mm-hmm. what did they find mm. there? Hippos, thousands <laughs> Amazing. of hippos. So in the previous interglacial period, the Eemian, which ended about 100,000 years ago, which in ecological time is the blink of an eye, we had quite a few animals which we don't associate with the UK today. In fact, animals which we associate only with the tropics. But the reason we associate them only with the tropics is that they've been wiped out everywhere else. A megafauna, ecosystems dominated by huge animals, is the default state of all ecological systems on land and at sea. Everywhere had a megafauna. Everywhere except Australasia had elephants and rhinos. The hippos which live in Africa today, it's the same species that were living in the River Thames in the previous interglacial and whose bones were absolutely stuffed in the river river gravels under Trafalgar Square. Um, in Trafalgar Square also, they found uh, the bones of, of wild aurochs, this huge precursor to, to, to the, the domestic cow, of giant deer, um, sometimes mistakenly called the Irish elk, of rhinos, of hyenas and of lions. There were lions in Trafalgar Square long before Sir Edwin Landseer got to work. And the, the ecosystem was dominated by an animal called Paleooxodon antiquus, the, the straight-tusked elephant, which made the African elephant look like a ballet dancer. This thing was huge. It was a forest elephant, a temperate forest elephant. And when you saw the size of its neck bones, you could see that its job was pulling down trees. And it was the great tree-smashing beast which shaped the ecosystem. And when you look at the trees in Britain and Europe today, almost all deciduous trees have a number of common characteristics. They coppice very easily. In other words, they re-sprout from the stump. They pollard easily. They re-sprout from a broken trunk. They can be hedged. You can just smash them to pieces and they come bounding back the following spring uh, as if they scarcely noticed it. There's a whole series of adaptations which are adaptations in response to elephants. And we had two species of temperate rhinoceros here as well in the last interglacial, the the Merckx and the narrow-nosed rhino. Now, they got driven out of Britain by 
the the return of the ice, but they persisted in southern Europe until about 30,000 years ago, which is really no time at all ecologically. Then they all got wiped out. Bang. The elephants went, the rhinos went, the hippos went. The lions and hyenas, they hung around for another 10,000 years. Even in Britain, there were lions hunting reindeer over the frozen tundra. But eventually they went too. So what happened? Well, it was modern humans arriving in Europe and they just wiped it out. I went to an interesting presentation by a paleontologist who said, look, you archaeologists are barking up the wrong tree when you want to find out when modern humans arrived on a new island or a new continent. Because you're looking for archaeological evidence. You're looking for worked flints or fire sites, um, uh, bits of material which people might have left behind, cave drawings and stuff. But that stuff's extremely rare. The populations of people in these places would have been very small. You know, you're really looking for a needle in a haystack. You don't need to bother with that. Look instead not at the archaeology, but at the paleontology, at the fossil record of other species, and you'll see exactly when humans come. Because until that point, you'll see megafauna, 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 all down through the fossil record. You'll see the elephants, you'll see the rhinos, you'll see the elephant birds of Madagascar, you'll see the short-faced bears of North America, you'll see the glyptodonts, you'll see the, the giant sloths, you'll see the gomphotheres, you'll see the mastodons, you'll see the 20-foot monitor lizards in Australia, the gigantic uh, pythons who live there, the huge horned tortoises, the wombats the size of rhinoceroses, the marsupial lions, and then suddenly, bang, they disappear all at once, poof, gone. That's the point at which modern humans arrived. We had the Argentinian rock, Argentavis magnificens, a bird with a 26-foot wingspan. My we gosh. had 9-foot saber-toothed sa salmon running up the rivers from the Pacific. We had beavers six foot long. We had a giant bison, one and a half times the size of, of, of the, the bison that exists today. I mean, it just it, giants, monsters, everywhere you look. And everywhere we turned up, bang, we just wiped them out. The only reason that we still have any megafauna on Earth is that megafauna lives in places such as in Eastern and Southern Africa and in South Asia, where it co-evolved with human beings. And we're coming to the end of our conversation, George, and about this time we normally play an extract from the audiobook. Feral is incredibly descriptive and you take the reader with you when exploring these ecosystems that we've talked about. So let's take a listen to an early chapter where you decide to take to the water. On the riverbank, beside the old railway bridge, I loaded my boat. I tied on a spool I had made from hazel poles, wound with orange twine and a team of tinsel lures. I lashed a bottle of water and a wooden club to the cleats on either side of my seat and attached the paddle to the boat with the leash. Anything not tied down was likely to be lost. In the pockets of my life jacket were spare lures, swivels and weights, a chocolate bar, a knife and, in case I was stung, a cigarette lighter. I stepped into the brown water. It filled my diving boots, soaking into my socks. It would keep my feet warm all day. I pushed the boat into deeper water, then swung myself into it and set off downstream. Two sandpipers dipped and swooped along the bank. A family of swans bow-waved up the river, struggling against the current. 
Soon I reached the fast, sparkling water in the shallows beyond the first meander. It rose in plumes over the rocks and raced between them, breaking into manes of spray. I sped through the rapids, bouncing off the water cushions on the boulders, feeling alive and free. Then the river reached the beach and spilled in a shallow fan across it. I found a channel just deep enough to carry me and slid down into the first wave, which swamped the kayak, then let me pass. The other breakers alternately sluiced over the prow or lifted the boat to smack it down with a great shudder onto the water. I paddled hard, submerging, rising, collapsing into the troughs, pushing through the breaking waves into the rolling waters beyond. I turned once, memorised the marks on the shore, then set out to sea. That was Feral, written and read by my guest George Monbiot. And whilst we're here, do remember to rate, comment and subscribe to the Penguin Podcast. We love to know what you think and we don't want you to miss our free fortnightly episodes. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Now, before we go, George, um, you've launched the Natural Climate Solutions campaign, which involved a short film with a uh, very, very famous teenager, Miss Griffith Thunberg. Can you tell us about the Natural Climate Solutions campaign? We realised that there was a really positive side to climate action, which is that we know now it's too late just to um, stop burning fossil fuels. We desperately need to do that. We need to leave fossil fuels in the ground. But if we did only that, we couldn't prevent two degrees or even more of global heating because the the um, we're just on that disastrous upward curve because we have left it so late. So we also have to draw down a lot of the carbon emissions which have already been released into the atmosphere. We have to draw down and store carbon dioxide. And the best way of doing that is through rewilding, is through ecological restoration. So basically everything that's good for nature turns out to be good for the atmosphere as well. That um, if if you uh, restore forests, if you restore mangroves and salt marshes and peat bogs and all the other wonderful things that rewilders like me want to restore, if you allow beavers back into the rivers, if you allow wolves back into the forests, you see a huge amount of carbon storage taking place as a result of their re-engineering of the ecosystem. So it brings together these two agendas that fascinate and compel me and in natural climate solutions we find a way of telling a really positive environmental story about how we can protect the living world and protect ourselves at the same time george it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today i could speak to you for bloody hours <laughs> um and here and i just feel like i've just touched upon like five percent yeah. of your experience and your knowledge, <laughs> but uh, hopefully we can do a part two and a part three and a part four and a part five. I'll Let's just do just turn up at your door once we're allowed to, <laughs> yeah, uh, we're to, allowed. to stalk people again, and, <laughs> uh, and we'll try and work this out. George, thank you. Thank you, Neil. It's been it's been great. Gabe sees his daughter for the last time, but refuses to believe she is gone. He searches endlessly for three years until he stumbles across the other people a group who can help the lost find their loved ones. But all is not what it seems. A long line of cars crawling through the M1 roadworks. 
It felt like they had started sometime in the last century and looked set to continue well into the next millennium. Gabe sighed and tapped his fingers on the wheel, as though this could somehow hurry along the traffic or summon a time machine. He was almost late. Not quite. Not yet. A gripping new thriller from the author of The Chalkman, the audiobook of The Other People by C.J. Tudor, is available to download now.